0: German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. While Nietzsche tragically denied uh, God's existence and died without faith, he may have been on to something here. It is impossible to deny the reality of suffering in the world, the suffering around us, the suffering we ourselves experience, even at times suffering that we may cause others by our own actions. Since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, suffering has marked the human experience. And to find some meaning, some significance in that experience of suffering is a profound pursuit. I contend that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that truly elevates and redeems our experience of suffering that accomplishes what Nietzsche suggested, to find some meaning in our suffering. Today, we're going to look at a passage toward the end of the New Testament book of James. If you have a Bible nearby, you can turn there. I know you have a Bible nearby because I put a bunch of them out. So grab a Bible, turn to the book of James near the end of the New Testament. We're going to look today at a passage near the end of this book for exhortation and encouragement concerning how to deal with the suffering that we will invariably face in this broken world in which we live. So a little bit of context for James in, in this passage. This letter is written by uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who became the, the maybe the chief leader or elder in the Jerusalem church that we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, and, and he seems to have been recognized as an apostle after Christ's resurrection, similarly to Paul. Paul acknowledges him as, as one of the apostles, though he was not one of the 12 uh, original uh, disciples during Jesus's earthly ministry. So it, we don't want to confuse this James, he wrote this letter with the James who was the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the, the 12 disciples throughout the gospels. Uh, this is a different James. Indeed, the James who grew up as a half brother, as it were, with, with the Lord himself. And uh, James's letter is extremely practical. If you read through the book of James, you find uh, that, that the majority of it is taken up with, with uh, sort of the, the lived-out shape of the Christian faith, how we carry out the life of faith in the world. For example, James famously says that faith without works is dead, not at all suggesting that our good works are what save us, but rather that true saving faith will be evidenced by the fruit of good works. Right? That's what James is getting at uh, in, in that passage. And the verses we'll look at today aren't precisely at the end of the letter. So if you'll indulge me a little bit, we've been, we're doing a series called Endings. We're looking at the last verses of some New Testament books. These are not quite the last verses of the book of James, but they come very near the end. Uh, and they seem to me to be a worthwhile reflection for some of my final exhortations and encouragements to you as a congregation before the Lord sends us off all into new seasons and new sheepfolds, as it were. So let me read for us uh, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Join me in a brief prayer of illumination as we study his word together. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. The main idea from these verses is this. In a broken world... Wait with patient hope for the coming of the Lord. In a broken world, wait with patient hope for the coming of the Lord. Then I see three particular things that James calls us to wait for as we're waiting with patient hope in the midst of the brokenness and suffering of the world. The first is this, wait for the Lord's relief. Wait for. For the Lord's relief. He begins in verse seven by saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. The word therefore always reminds us that we need to look back to what he's referring to, what has come immediately before, and what came before these verses, that the context is the oppression and unjust suffering of impoverished Christian workers who have been mistreated by their wealthy employers. So there's the, the passage that begins, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, are addressing these Christians who are working and being mistreated and not given their fair wages and, and being sort of oppressed by these rich uh, masters and employers. And so he says, be patient, therefore, right, until the coming of the Lord. So it's worth noting that in the context of, of their suffering, in the context of their mistreatment, in the context of injustice that they were experiencing, he does not call them to political activism or to social revolution, but to patient hope. Therefore, since you're suffering, since you're being unjustly treated, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He calls them to hope in the future return of Jesus when he ushers in his just and righteous kingdom. So they will have their day in court, so to speak, when the king returns to deliver justice to the wicked and salvation to the righteous. So the first exhortation is in your suffering, even when your suffering is caused directly by the sins of others, by mistreatment and injustice upon you, wait for the Lord's belief. When the Lord comes, he will bring an end to that injustice and that suffering. Now, you may not be in such a pronounced season of of suffering or systemic sort of suffering like that, but suffer you will. One way or another, it will come. The world is broken Humanity is fallen and life outside of Eden is no walk in the park, as I'm sure by now you've come to realize and understand. The apostles instructed uh, uh, the saints in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, I'm removing you from the hardship of the world. He says, I've overcome it. So you can be courageous. You can be strengthened by my presence, by my victory in the midst of the trouble you will face. So part of what it means to find meaning in our suffering is not to seek ways to avoid it. It's not to get really creative about how we can sort of skirt around the difficulties and pain of life in a fallen world. It's embracing the hardships that come into our life with the faithful presence of Jesus and looking forward to his return. And to illustrate the patient hope to which he's calling us, James uses the analogy of a farmer. Look at the second part of verse seven there. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The early rains would have come in the fall, just after the sowing of seeds. So there was a season when they would till the ground and sow all the seed and then wait for the rains to come. And then there was a season, that early season of of, uh, the the early rains, where those rains were extremely important for cultivating those seeds uh, in the earth. And then the late rains would come in the spring, just before the harvesting of crops. So it rained throughout that uh, sort of winter season, if you will, but the most important rains were that early rain right after sowing and the late rains right before harvesting. In the meantime, you know, from like October to May, the farmer waits. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, he says knowing that the precious fruit will come in due time, but he cannot force it to happen. He can't go out there and do crazy stuff to the earth and make the seeds that he's sown grow into something. That is the invisible work that happens beneath the soil that God alone can bring. He has to depend on the rains to come. He has to depend on the waters that have fallen to the earth to do the work that they alone can do to cultivate those seeds and to grow them into something. And so the farmer waits. One of my favorite series of children's books is Frog and Toad. Anybody big frog and toad feeling like I am? So I still read these stories to my children. And there's a story in one of the books called The Garden. And in the garden, frog has planted himself a garden and toad sees it and says, wow, that is so beautiful. I would love to have a garden like that. And so frog says, well, here's some seeds. You can go and plant these seeds and... Uh, and in just a little while, you'll have a garden of your own. And Todd is so excited. Oh my goodness, I can't wait! And so he goes back to his house and he puts the seeds in the earth. Excitedly plants them, and then he starts to talk to the seeds. Okay, seeds, now start growing. He says, and he watches, and nothing happens. So he gets a little closer to the ground. Maybe they can't hear him. He puts his face to the ground, and then he shouts at them. Seeds, start growing! And they still aren't growing, and Frog comes up and sees him yelling at the seeds. What are you doing? He says, "Well, I'm trying to get my seeds to grow." And Frog says, "Well, these seeds are afraid to grow because you're screaming at them." So Toad is now he takes it to, "Oh no, I've, I've I've made my seeds afraid," and so now he has to soothe them. And so he 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 takes a candle out at night so they won't be afraid of the dark, and and he sings to the seeds, and he reads poems to the seeds, and uh, and, and and thinking that that this will soothe them into to growing. But time and time again, no matter what he tries, the seeds aren't growing, right? Nothing is happening that he can see. And so he's frustrated, he's exhausted, and he finally falls asleep. He's out in the garden and he falls asleep yeah. against a tree or something. And the next morning, Frog wakes him up and he says, hey, look, your seeds have started to grow. And so when Toad awakes, he finds that the, the little green plants have started now to come out of the ground. And so Toad's anxiety and frantic activity didn't help his seeds in the slightest. It wasn't the singing of songs and the reading of poems and the shouting at the earth for them to grow that brought the fruit. Appropriately, it was while he was sleeping that the plants pushed their way through the soil. And so it is with the kingdom. We can't force the kingdom to come We can't, by our frantic activity, make Jesus come a little quicker. We can't, by our pounding the ground and shouting at the seeds, as it were, make fruit happen. It's the work of God. It's the invisible movement of the Spirit of God beneath the soil, as it were, that causes the growth of his kingdom. And so in light of that, in light of the the, the awareness that We can't force the kingdom to come. We can't hasten Jesus' return by our actions. In light of that, James says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. Now, that's the Greek word sterizo, which means to strengthen, to make stable. In other words, settle your mind and hearts in confidence at the near return of Christ for these troubles will come to an end in due time. Establish your hearts. There's a commentator I read uh, this week. He says this about this, this instruction to establish your hearts. He says, By heart, James refers to the innermost part of the person, which will be tempted to wither in resignation or strike out in retribution. Instead... The internal compass of a Christian should be set on the due north of the Lord's return. We can be strong internally, not because we have the means to effect our own justice, but because of the eminent coming of the all powerful judge who is also our Lord. A child abused by a bully on the playground will stand taller when he sees the school's principal approaching. So knowing that the Lord is near that his return will come, we can endure seasons of injustice and of suffering and of hardship because when he comes, he will bring an end to that suffering. Friends, in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus will return to the earth to bring us home and your suffering will come to an end. In his kingdom, there's no unjust treatment of workers. There's no COVID-19. There's no hospital burn unit, because no child will burn her hand in the new creation. As the old song says, there's just a few more weary days, and then I'll fly away. Wait for the Lord's relief. The second thing he calls us to wait on in verse 9 is to wait for the Lord's judgment. Wait for the Lord's judgment. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, one of the tendencies we have as sinners is to grumble against one another. And that's probably even more pronounced. The instinct, the desire to to do so is even more pronounced when we're in a season of suffering. When things are hard, it's a lot easier to sort of turn on each other. Think back to the early days of the pandemic when everybody was sort of cloistered in their houses and trapped together in close quarters and you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't see any other people. How long did it take for people to just start getting aggravated with one another, right? We, we grumble against one another. And that's not just the case in families. It's not just the case in workplaces. It's the case in the church. It's easy for us to grumble against other believers because of our own impatience, or because of their sin or weakness. I am hurting, and I want everyone to know it. Or maybe I need someone to blame for it. And so we we may lash out at others and begin to be impatient or unkind because of our suffering. So note here, James is confronting both an attitude of the heart, a sort of a grumbling heart against our brothers and sisters, and a pattern of speech. Don't grumble in your heart against one another and don't say things about one another that are dismissive or uncharitable. And the book of James has largely and poignantly dealt with the power of speech, the power of the tongue. Consider how great a a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Speaking of the power of our words to affect massive harm on people. He's spoken at length about that through chapters three and, and four. And so again here, when he says don't grumble against one another, he has, he has in mind both the attitude that puts others down or views others uncharitably and the words we say about others or to others that may put them down, that don't bear the marks of love and patience And I wonder if you notice when he says, do do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. That sounds a little bit like some very famous words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And that's one of those Bible verses that non-Christians love to take out of context. Judge not lest you be judged. As though that means everything is fine, leave me alone, stay in your lane, I do me, you do you, it's all good. You have no place to judge anything about anybody. And that's clearly not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, He isn't saying here that we're never to make you know moral judgments or assessments. But if you notice this phrase, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged, that command, do not grumble, is in the same position as do not judge. In Jesus' phrase, do not judge, lest you be judged. James says, do not grumble against one another, lest you be judged. And the judging that Jesus had in mind and that James has in mind here is a kind of temporal condemnation that we may cast upon one another without charity, without patience, without humility. Perhaps we observe somebody's behavior, hear their speech, look at their lives, and we make a determination, an assessment of that person. That person is on the blank, whatever sort of adjective you might choose. And then we sort of close the book on them as though we're the judge and the jury, right? We've decided this is that kind of person that he is or that she is, and we judge them unkindly, uncharitably, and we think of our assessment as absolute. This is what it is. This is what it will always be. James here calls believers to extend the patience, to extend, excuse me, patience and charity to one another. The benefit of the doubt, the grace of second and even third chances, and the humility of fallibility. In other words, it seems to me that this is the way it is, but I might be wrong. I might be wrong is a really important phrase for Christians to learn. There's are certain things that we need to be resolute about and even dogmatic about, certainly, when it comes to core doctrines of the Christian faith. But there's a whole lot in the living of the Christian life, in relating to other sinners, even within the church, about which we just might not have it all right. We might not have all the facts. Our perspective might not be correct. Our hearts themselves may be uh, tainted and stained with sinful bias or prejudice. We need to make sure that we are humble enough to say, I could be wrong. And so don't grumble against one another, lest you be judged, right? And so then he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge being Jesus, again, referring back to the coming of the Lord. He said back in verse seven, wait uh, with patience until the coming of the Lord. And so now he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, he's, he's ready. He, he's, he, his return is near and he alone will judge his people. Paul said in Romans 14, 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Each one stands before Jesus alone as his judge. And so it's not our job to make these sort of categorical judgments of his people. Jesus is the one who is to judge them. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never to make moral judgments, to discern good and evil in the lives of professing believers. Jesus gave churches the authority to carry out discipline in the cases of those whose lives remain consistently out of step with their profession to know and follow Christ. But in matters of secondary importance, uh, personality clashes, differences of opinion on disputable matters, leave it to the Lord to guide his people and give one another space to think and act differently. In other words, stay in your lane, right? How we speak about one another in a local church and about other Christians in general is of serious importance. I'll give you two particular applications of of this exhortation. First, when you have a legitimate concern, a disagreement, an offense with a fellow believer, go speak to him or her directly, personally, privately about it. Ask questions, don't make accusations. Seek peace, not the upper hand. But whatever you do, don't complain to others about that person. Don't spread ill will about that person by making sure that everyone around you knows that you've been hurt by them. Be direct, be humble, be peaceable. This is what the Lord calls us to. This is one application of do not grumble against one another. When you have an issue with a fellow believer, go to him directly and seek Peace. Second, guard your speech about other Christians in public spaces, including, perhaps especially, online. In my estimation, the Christian presence on certain social media platforms is one enormous, sustained violation of James four eleven. Brothers, do not slander one another. I don't know if you've spent very much time on Christian Twitter and places like that. It is ugly. People in the name of Christ belittling one another. Constantly, take care how you speak about other Christians in public spaces. The Lord is the judge of each of us. Wait patiently for his return when he will judge us all according to our deeds and reward each one appropriately. That's his job, not ours. Rich Mullins had a song called Brother's Keeper. It says this, I will be my brother's keeper not the one who judges him. I won't despise him for his weakness. I won't regard him for his strength. I won't take away his freedom. I will help him learn to stand. I will be my brother's keeper. Wait for the Lord's judgment. And the final exhortation comes in verses 10 and 11. Wait for the Lord's blessing. Wait for the Lord's blessing So in these last two verses, James gives us two ancient examples of patient hope in the face of suffering. The prophets and Job. So look in verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. It's appropriate that the prophets are put forward as examples of patience in suffering because these dudes were not known for their rosy experiences or their cheery dispositions. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. Hosea was married to a woman who repeatedly harloted herself around town as a prophetic metaphor of the people's unfaithfulness to God. The task of the prophet was almost always to deliver a wildly unpopular message to very powerful people. we often glamorize the notion of speaking truth to power. But here are men who bluntly told idolatrous kings that they were guilty of treason against God and would incur his just wrath if they didn't repent. These fellows were probably not a lot of fun at dinner parties, I'm guessing. And they weren't very popular in their own day and with the people to whom they ministered not just the kings, but the people at large. Nobody really wanted to hear this message of repent or be judged. That's not a popular message. People these days don't really warm up to that message too much either. I'll read just uh, some verses from Hebrews chapter 11 that speak of uh, some of these men and, and others who Uh, endure incredible hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. So this is Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 32. He's been going on. The, the author of Hebrews in in chapter eleven is talking about these all of these great examples of faith throughout the, the the scriptures of how they trusted God. How Abraham went to a place he didn't know because he believed that God was preparing a city, and all of these things. And so he gets to the sort of the end of this list, and in verse thirty two, he says, "And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah." of David and Samuel and the prophets, there we get a category of them, who stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In the face of fierce opposition and terrible suffering, even at times actual martyrdom, the prophets were steadfast in faith. Their hearts were established, to use James's words, and they obeyed God's commands because they were trusting in God's grace to deliver them into a lasting inheritance. And so, he says, we consider them blessed. Who remain steadfast? Would have been a lot easier to walk away. Would have been easier to do what Jonah tried to do for a while and just run. I'll just go the other direction when God calls me to the hard place. And eventually, he did what God called him to do. But we consider those who remain steadfast blessed because we recognize they were doing the work of God. And they indeed were in the, the favor of God, in the heart of God. And now we trust that they're with him in heaven. And so we regard them blessed to remain steadfast. So that's the example of the prophets, the hard things they endured for the sake of God and his kingdom in their state of blessing now. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. Now people often speak of someone having the the patience of Job, right? Meaning that they seem to be able to endure a lot of hardship with relative peace and poise. And this is true of Job to a large extent, although he had his moments of sort of bluster and frustration with God, if you read through his book. But I think James's point in bringing up Job is not so much to commend Job, per se, but to point us toward God. Look what he says. You, you, you uh, have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The most important truth that we learn from Job's example is that God is merciful, and that He has redemptive purposes in the various hardships and trials that we face in this broken world. For those who are in Christ, all of your griefs and miseries are being redeemed. Every tear you shed for sorrow in this life represents a joy beyond imagination that you will experience in the new creation. Because Jesus suffered on the cross in your place, your griefs have taken on a new and eternal significance. This light, momentary affliction, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And because Jesus has promised to come again and consummate his kingdom of true justice and righteousness, we can endure even the deepest sorrows and fiercest suffering in this broken world with patient hope because we know the pain is not the end of the story. Friends, wait for the Lord's relief, wait for the Lord's judgment, wait for the Lord's blessing. And so we will be able to endure the suffering and hardship of this world with patient hope in the Lord's return. I want to conclude today with some song lyrics. This is most of the lyrics to a song called Rise Up, written by Ben Shive, but recorded by Andrew Peterson on his Easter album, Resurrection Letters, Volume 1, which I highly commend to you. Here's the words of the song. Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. Every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await Await the day of his return. As he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He is patient in his anger. But he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea. When the high and mighty fall down on their knee. We'll see the sun descending on the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet and you will rise up in the end. That's pretty good.